Would you watch this video with me for the purpose of being, of hearing from the Lord? The biggest reason the poor are still with us is simply this. We expect that they should be. I mean, I wonder if we lack the imagination, if we lack the hope that the world could be dramatically different. But the good news is we can be released from the tyranny of our low expectations. We can be free from that lie that the future will somehow be like our past. The truth is, extreme global poverty can be overthrown by our generation. But maybe you're a realist. You're a little skeptical. I mean, you may believe that it's possible in theory, but you kind of doubt that it could be accomplished anytime soon. I mean, the statistics are overwhelming. 164,000 children died of measles in a single year. 881,000 people were killed by malaria. 1.4 billion people struggle to live in extreme poverty. That's surviving on less than $1.25 per day. But you know, measles doesn't kill people. Malaria doesn't kill people. A lack of food or clean water, they don't kill people. Even most natural disasters, they rarely kill people. There is one single killer responsible for all of these deaths, extreme poverty. Poverty is the difference between a $5 latte with an extra shot or a $5 shot that will protect a child from dying of measles. Poverty is the difference between an earthquake in Los Angeles killing 63 people and an earthquake of similar magnitude in Haiti killing 220,000 people. Wherever poverty has a stronghold, the statistics are grim. I recently spoke at a pastor's conference. I asked these church leaders, these pastors, to write down one verse, the first verse that came to their mind about poverty or about the poor. You wanna guess what the most common answer was? The poor will always be with you. Jesus said those words right after Mary poured a $45,000 jar of perfume on his feet. And Judas, you know, Judas Iscariot, the greedy little treasurer, he, he saw that money dripping on the floor, dripping on that dirt, and he objected and he said, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. It was worth a year's wages. So Jesus then turns to Judas, the keeper of the purse, and he says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Well, wait a second, let's look at that again. You will not always have me? We will not always have Jesus? But later he says, I will be with you always. Which is it? We know the answer. How can we treat the first half of this sentence like an all-time proclamation and we put the second half in context? I mean, who is the you? Jesus didn't say the poor would always be with us. Jesus didn't somehow ordain economic poverty because he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to Judas. When Jesus prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it wasn't some cliche fit for a greeting card. It was his driving ambition for his kingdom. And God does not want people to suffer in economic poverty. God does not intend for people to die of preventable diseases. God clearly and repeatedly has commanded us to care for the poor and God has given us everything we need to end extreme poverty. Here is the astounding truth. The tyranny of extreme poverty is being broken. In the past eight years, the number of kids dying from measles has dropped by 78%. 22 countries have cut their malaria rate in half, and they did it in only six years. You know, we used to say that 40,000 children die every day from preventable causes. In the 90s, that number dropped from 40,000 to 33,000 per day, and in 2008, it dropped again to 24,000, and now we're down to 21,000. We cut that number in half in a generation. I'd like to take you back 200 years to 1810. We had an average lifespan of 30 years, and almost all of us were living in extreme economic poverty, but things begin to change. Industrialization starts to happen in Europe, and, and the economies are growing, and as they're making more money, they're able to secure more quality food, and they're living longer, they're living healthier. And in that time, we discover electricity, and we invent the automobile, and airplanes, and vaccines, and soon the rest of the world is following. And as you look across that whole span of time, you see this momentum, this sense that we are heading somewhere. Even those countries that we look at today and think, oh, it's just not possible. They are all following this path out of extreme poverty and into a new place. You remember that massive number that I gave you earlier, the number of people living in extreme poverty, 1.4 billion? 
Well, listen to this. I mean, if you're only gonna remember one set of numbers from all this stuff I'm telling you, remember this, 52 to 26 and 26 to go. In 1981, 52% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Today, that number is 26%. We've cut the percentage of people living in extreme poverty in half, and we did it in a generation. If that's what the generation before ours did, just imagine what our generation can do. There are 138 million Christians in America who attend church regularly and say their faith is very important to them. Collectively, we earn $2.5 trillion per year. We would be the seventh richest country in the world. If we were a country, we'd have a seat at the G8. God has given us amazing wealth and influence. Question is, what are we going to do with it? What could we do with it? You know, in Isaiah 58, we find God's people. They are trying, no, they're begging to receive blessings from the Lord. But they're exploiting their workers and they're fighting with each other. They're bickering and they're complaining that their sacrifices haven't, haven't been noticed by God and that their fasting has, has been overlooked. But Isaiah, the prophet, he steps into that and he says, you want God to honor your sacrifices? Well, this is what you need to do. It's time to loose the chains of injustice. It's time to set the oppressed free. I believe the message of Isaiah 58 is the same message that we need to hear again today. No more idle words. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. It's time for authentic action. Let's stop performing out of religious habits and start living the life we were called to. The poor will not always be with us. We do not need to live in a world where children die from preventable diseases. Extreme poverty and all the suffering it brings can be pushed into the history books. And God has given us the mandate and every resource that we need to accomplish that task. He has entrusted us with money, with knowledge, with influence, and with a brief amount of time on this earth, a brief amount of time in which to make a difference. Ending extreme poverty is our generation's greatest opportunity to join the ranks of those who fought for the end of the slave trade, to stand with those who worked for equal rights in the generations before ours. And we are asking you to join this march, not because you need to, not from duty, not out of guilt, not with any reluctance, but because you want to, because you were made for this. The, our prophet this morning is, is Amos. If you were here last week, we talked about how Israel as a nation, you know, after God put them in the promised land, after 400 years of being in, in exile in Egypt, he put them in, in the promised land. But it didn't take long for their sin to overtake them, and eventually they would end up dividing as a nation. Ten tribes going north, two going south. Israel was in the north, Judah was in the south. And in the north, there was never one good king. There was never one leader of the people of Israel in the north who followed and loved God. And uh, we're going to start off there. We're going to look at the northern kingdom first, and we're going to look at two prophets, Amos and Hosea. Hosea will be next week. Both of these men were called to go to the northern kingdom and speak and speak for God. Um, in Amos's book, if you read it, hopefully you did. If not, if you have a Bible, you might want to keep it open. I'm, I'm just going to, this is going to be a different kind of message. We're really not going to go verse by verse, okay? So uh, do your best to follow along the things that I'm saying. But uh, Amos tells us that he wrote his book in the year that Uzziah was king in the south, in Judah, and Jeroboam II was king in the north. Now, Uzziah reigned from 790 to 40, 740 uh, B.C., before Christ, and Jeroboam reigned from 793 to 753. So somewhere in that time period, between 800 and 750 B.C., is the time that Amos is sent up to the northern kingdom uh, to speak for God to them. Now, one of the things that Amos says at the beginning of his book is that this was two years before the great earthquake. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I would encourage you to go on the internet. There's an awful lot in there about Amos's earthquake. It's called Amos's earthquake because he's kind of going to reference, you know, this earthquake or this coming earthquake two years before it happens. He's going to have several 
um, references to it. For instance, in 8.8 of Amos, he says the land is going to be shaken. In 6.11, he says houses will be smashed. Altars will be cracked in 3.14. The temple itself will be struck and collapsing in 9.1. And, and so these are things that Amos says before the earthquake ever comes. Now, archaeologists have done a lot of research, and they, they have concluded that this earthquake, Amos's earthquake, was probably around 8 on the Richter scale. Now, if you ask me, you say, Jimmy, how do, you, how do they know that? I have no idea, but you can go out on the internet, okay? And they have determined based on archaeological evidence that this is probably an 8 on the Richter scale, and it happens somewhere around 750 B.C., plus or minus 30 years, okay? So, so for us, it doesn't mean that much. We, we're, we're, we're almost 3,000 years removed from this period. But for those folks in Amos's day, when he is writing, I mean, the earthquake was, I mean, it was something that was telling. It was a marker point for the people of that day when, when, he, was, when he was writing. In his book, he tells us a little about himself in chapter 7. He tells, that he tells us, and I'm going to quote here from 14 and 15, he says, I am not a prophet, nor, I am, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, in those days, there were vocational prophets, just like we have vocational pastors today, men like myself who are supported by God's people. The prophets were supported by God's people as well. So there were prophets who were vocational. They did it for a living. They prophesied, and people supported them. Amos was not one of them. In fact, I would imagine that Amos was, was pretty shocked when however God spoke to him and called him north, I imagine he was pretty, pretty shocked by that because this is not what he did. In fact, in Amos 1.1, we read that he's a shepherd from Tekoa. Tekoa was about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was in a very harsh and rugged territory. And so not only did he raise sheep in that territory, but he also made a living or eked out a living, I should say, by harvesting sycamore fruit. And uh, we find that in 714. Now, the sycamore tree was a small mulberry bush. It had a small edible fruit, but they say it didn't taste very good. It was actually called a poor man's fruit. And so the picture we have of Amos is that seriously, he is he is a subsistence farmer, barely making it. Remember the video we saw earlier talked about how most of us 200 years ago lived in, in extreme poverty. I would imagine that Amos lived in extreme poverty uh, as well. And it's out of, this, out of this situation that God is going to say to Amos, I want you to leave that and I want you to go north and speak for me in Israel. Now, one of the things that I think this implies to us is that Amos was a man with great faith, everyone. He had to be. He had to be a man committed to, uh, to, the, to the Lord. He had to be such a man because he would leave everything and, and not just go to his own country, but go north to a, a country that's divided. He would go north and deliver this, this message that God called him uh, to deliver. Now, before we move on, I want to make a statement, and uh, this is kind of almost sidebar note, but, but I think that Amos is as much the message to us today as the message that Amos would deliver. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean is that God wants to tell you and me something through Amos the man. And it's this, that I don't care who you are, I don't care what you do, God can use you if you are available. If you are willing, if you, if you are someone who is faithful and you are, saying, and you are willing to say, God, use me, God will use you. You do not have to be a vocational pastor like myself. You do not have to be seminary trained. You do not have to be wealthy. You don't even have to have a lot of great skills. You just be faithful. And if God calls you to something, and God will, I believe God wants to call us to things to use us in his kingdom. But we need to be available. So if there's a lesson from Amos the man, it would be this. Be available to the Lord. Be used of the Lord. When he calls you out, when he says something, he puts something on your heart, don't be afraid. Do it. Now, I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about you leaving your country and going somewhere else. Now, God's probably called some of you in this room to that very thing. But that's not what I'm really talking about. I'm just talking about if God calls you to do anything, if he tells you, go speak to your colleague, go talk to your neighbor. And, and by the way, I think he is telling us to do that sort of thing. But you know when the Holy Spirit just sort of touches your heart and says, I want you, Jimmy, to go talk to that person, John, or to that lady, Sally, or whatever... When he tells you and me to do that, this is the kind of thing I'm telling you. We need to be like Amos, because Amos was willing and at great cost to himself. 
So Amos goes north, and the message that he's going to deliver to the people of Israel, it's not a fun message. He's not going up there to tell them how wonderful or how God is so blessed by them. That's not why he's going up there. As a matter of fact, he's going up there to bring a message of judgment against them. So all the more you have to admire Amos, who is willing to leave what little he does to go up there and bring this message to the people of Israel. Now, I want you to learn the book this morning. So, like I said, hopefully you've read it. If you haven't, maybe go back and read it this week. It's, it's only nine chapters. It reads pretty quick. But the book of Amos is divided into three parts. If you're taking notes, here's something you might want to note. It's divided into three parts, and the first part is the first two chapters. The first two chapters is comprised of, of eight condemnations. He is going to, to bring forth eight statements, pronouncements of condemnation against nations and against, uh, some of them are cities, but basically against people groups. And he begins every one of these condemnations like this. For three transgressions or for four, God will punish Damascus, Tyre, these different places. Now that's a Hebrewism. That's, a, that's, a, that's an idiom. And what that simply means, this, and an idiom, by the way, is uh, a state. I asked the guys in my class, and somebody says, what do you say, Stuart? It's a statement that doesn't mean anything but means something. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. It's a statement that doesn't necessarily mean anything that we can we, we connect with, but it does mean something. For instance, if I were to say it's raining cats and dogs, well, nobody's ever seen raining cats and dogs, right? But we know what raining cats and dogs means, right? It's, it's an idiom. Well, this is a, this is a Hebrewism or an idiom for, for the Hebrew people, and it meant simply this, for lots of transgressions, for lots of transgressions, I'm going to judge these people. And so when Amos shows up there in Israel, he begins to preach, and he starts with these, these eight pronouncements, and the first seven are against Damascus and Gaza, Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and Judah, even Amos' Amos's own home country, he has a pronouncement against them. And I would imagine, I want you to just kind of put yourself back into the public square and Amos is standing up on a block somewhere and he's, he's delivering his message. And I would imagine that everyone is cheering as he, as he just condemns all these different nations. And then he gets to the eighth one, and in the eighth one, he turns his attention to Israel itself. The last pronouncement is against Israel. Now, I don't know if they were cheering. If they were cheering, I guarantee you they got mighty quiet, maybe even began to, to boo when he begins to bring this pronouncement against, uh, against national Israel. But he does. In verse 6, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even for four. And then he proceeds to give his indictment against Israel. Now, the second part of the book, or the second part of Amos' book, is, the, is the, the middle section, and it's from chapters 3 to 6. And in chapters 3 to 6, we have three messages that Amos delivers to the people of Israel. He begins each one of them like this. Listen to this message, 3-1, 4-1, and 5-1. Those are the chapter beginnings. And in each one of those beginnings, we have a message that Amos is going to deliver to God's people there in northern Israel. I would imagine that when he begins uh, his message in chapter 4, I think it is, he, he starts his message like this. Listen to this, you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. I, I just love it that Amos would stand up and call the women of Israel Bashan cows, right? I just absolutely love that. I don't know why, women. I'm not trying to say anything. I just think that's kind of neat, man. He would stand up to those women, right, who were obviously some women in charge. Now, the last section of Amos' book is chapters 7 through 9. Again, if you're taking notes, three sections, 1 to 2, 3 to 6, 7 to 9. 1 to 2, 8 pronouncements. 3 to 6, 3 messages. 7 to 9, he's going to give five visions that he sees. I'm going to tell you five things I saw, he tells them. The first one, he says, is I saw a vision of locusts destroying Israel. The second one is I saw fire sweeping across Israel, destroying everything. And in both cases, Amos speaks to the Lord, and he says, Lord, how could Israel survive if you do that? And then, and then Amos follows up with God saying, I relent. I'm not going to do that. So he gives these two visions, and, and I don't know, but it sounds almost like Amos' intercession 
you know, has something to do with God relenting about the visions that he gives him. He continues on. The third vision is a plumb line that he's holding up against the people of Israel. And he's saying to them, you are not straight. You are not what you need to be. The fourth vision is, is one of a fruit basket, a summer fruit basket that is rotting at the end. And then the last vision is God himself standing by the altar, pronouncing judgment against Israel. So that, that is the book of, of Amos. The, that is the way the book divides up. Now, uh, last week I told you, I told you that the prophets do four things. Here's what they do. Number one, they come and they point out sin. They condemn sin. Number two, they call people to repentance. Number three, they say to people, if you don't repent, God is going to judge. I am bringing a message of judgment from God. And then the fourth thing that I told you was that a prophet, the prophets of old always and I say always, I hope I'm going to be able to defend this, but they always point to a day of restoration. They always point to Jesus. They're always pointing to a day when God's going to bring something really good. And again, Amos does this. It's the very last part of chapter 9, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. But what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is I'd like to take the four things that I just told you that a prophet does, and I'd like to show you what Amos says in these four areas. But I'm going to take them in reverse order. Instead of talking about sin, repentance, and judgment, we're going to go with ju judgment, repentance, and then the sin. All right? Let's start with the judgment. First of all, Amos shows up there, and, and from the very get-go, in each section, section one, two, and three, in the pronouncements, in the messages, and in the visions, Amos has one thing he wants to say to Israel, God is going to judge you. God is going to judge you. So in chapter two, verse 13, he says, look, Speaking for God, look, I am about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift, the strong one will not maintain his strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the one who is swift of foot will not save himself, the one riding on a horse will not save his life, even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. Amos stands up, and this is where he talks in that very first pronouncement against, you know, against Israel, the eight, the eight pronouncements. He says, listen to me, you will not escape. You can be the strongest, you can be the swiftest, you're not going to escape God's judgment. In chapter 3, verse 11, the very first message of the three, he says, therefore the Lord says, an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. In chapter 4, verse 2, the second message of the second half, the second part, he says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you, with fish hooks. This is the Lord's declaration. In the third message, he says to them, chapter 5, verse 18, Woe to you. By the way, before I read this, the day of the Lord in the Bible is always the day of judgment. And so the people of Israel, some of them anyway, are looking for the day of judgment. And they're saying, hey, yeah, bring it on, bring it on, because I know you're going to get all these other people, God. Here's what God says to Israel. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It'll be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? This is what he says to them. He says, you're looking for the day of the Lord. Don't look for the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is going to be judgment against you. And you think you're running from a lion, but you're going to run into the arms of a bear. And you think it's great. Oh, man, I'm safe at home. You're going to put your arm on the, on the wall and a snake's going to bite you. He says, look, man, God is, is going to judge you. He also says in that very same message, look, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. Now, the people of Israel, as they listened to Amos, they rejected his message. In chapter 9, verse 10, the very end of his book, Amos says this, All the sinners among my people who say disaster will never overtake or confront us will die by the sword. Here's what he says. All you people who are saying, hey, Amos is full of it. We don't need to listen to him. I'm telling you, you're going to die by the sword. In chapter 7 of the book of Amos, again, if you read it, you, felt, you saw this piece because it was pretty, pretty insightful. But in, in, in chapter 7, Amaziah, who is the chief prophet in Israel, remember I told you there's professional prophets, Amaziah is one of them. In fact, he's the chief of the professional prophets, he has the head job, and he confronts, he confronts Amos, and he says, man, Amos, go back south and, and prophesy down there, go earn your bread down there. And that's when Amos says, oh, look, I'm not a prophet, 
I'm not the son of a prophet. I am a sheep herder and a fig picker down in, in Tekoa. God sent me up here. I am not anybody making a living from this. And, and, and so then, remember, this is what, then he turns to Amaziah and he says this to the chief prophet. Amos says to him, you say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says to you, Amaziah. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die on pagan soil. And Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Wow. Let's move on. Here's the second part. Okay, so that's the pronouncement of judgment that the prophets did, and that's what Amos did. But then there's a plea for repentance. And guys, listen, you know, God's judgment is, is not without mercy. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to come a time when God's going to enact his judgment. But listen, his judgment's not without mercy. God wants to, he wants to pour out mercy on us and on, on them in this case. So in the third message, Amos says this to Israel. The third message in that second section, he says, For the Lord says, this is chapter 5, verse 4, The Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go to exile, and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. Now, I have to, I have to explain that just a little bit. What is this about Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba? Well, when Jeroboam became king in the, in the north, right, when they split from Rehoboam and the two kingdoms divided... You know, Jeroboam didn't want, didn't want any of the Jews going down to Jerusalem to worship, which is where God told them to go. He didn't want them to do that because he was afraid they would go back and join the southern kingdom. And so he made two altars up north, two fake, fraud, non-ordained altars up in the north for people to worship. They were in Bethel and they were in Gilgal. And, and so the people would worship there. And he says, look, here's what he's saying, seek the Lord. Gilgal and Bethel that you guys have set up, that has nothing to do with me. If you seek those things, th those things are going into exile. Here's what you need to do. If you want to see God relent on this, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And the third message, excuse me, later on in the same message, he would say this, pursue good and not evil so that you may live and the Lord, the God of the armies will be with you as you have claimed. I mean, you claim God is with you, but he's not. But seek him, pursue good, not evil, so that he will be with you. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Here's what Amos is saying. Perhaps, maybe, maybe God will relent in what he sent me up here to do. And we're going to talk about another prophet in a few days, in a few weeks, excuse me, Jonah. You remember, Jonah didn't want to do what God told him to do because he was convinced God would show mercy. He didn't want to do it. He, didn't, he wanted God to, to judge him. And he didn't want to go. In this case, Amos is saying, maybe, maybe, men, women, if you listen to me, God will relent in what he's planning for you. He's already established God's judgment is going to be absolute. That brings us to the third part, the pronouncement of sin. What upset the Lord? What, what did Israel do that raised the ire of a holy God so much so that he would take Amos and send him north? to bring this pronouncement against them. Now, in just a few moments, I'm going to tell you what I believe is the central, the central issue to which God sent Amos to address. I think there's one central issue. Now, that does not mean that there are not other issues. Listen to me carefully. In fact, Hosea, next week, as we talk about Hosea, I think Hosea is addressing another issue, all right? So there's, I'm not saying this is the only issue, but this is the issue to which he sent Amos. And I'm going to suggest in just a moment that he sent Amos to a specific group of people in Israel, all right? But for instance, in, in early in the, in the book of Amos, we see him, God saying against the people of Israel that a dad and a son are having sex with the same woman. There's sexual immorality going on in Israel in a big way, okay? So, but that's really not the focus of Amos' condemnation, all right? There's, so there's other things, but, but I'm going to point out one. Before I do that, two things I want, you to, I want you to grab hold of. First is this. You know, sin in Israel is especially odious to God for this reason. Because, because of who these people are. Because they have been shown so much grace. 
In chapter 2, verse 9, this is what God, this is that first pronouncement, first section. I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars. He was as sturdy as an oak. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israel? In chapter 3, verse 2, the first message that Amos preaches, God says, I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Here's my point. God says, what you're doing is so odious to me because you have so much. You've been, you've been my people. You've been the folks that I chose. And because of your rebellion, it, it means that much more to me that you will not listen to my voice. And the second thing before I'm about to dive into it, okay, but the second thing that I want to just say, just kind of a precursor to what I'm going to say is this, that we should pay, we should pay close attention to what I'm going to say now. And the reason for that is because we are God's people. These were God's people. And the thing that God is going to indict them on, I think if we're not careful, we, we can fall into the same trap that they fell into. And so the things that he's going to say, Amos, through, God's going to say through Amos to them are things that I think God, you know, might want to say to us. These things are these things that we should say, God, how does this apply to me? So here we go. Take out the plumb line, Amos' plumb line, and measure your life against what I'm about to say. The major reason God brings his righteous judgment against Israel, or the major reason to which Amos is speaking is this. It is their contempt... And their lack of concern for justice and their lack of concern for the poor. All of that being rolled in, into one thing. It is their, their contempt for the poor, their injustice towards the poor, and their lack of mercy towards the poor. In his first indictment against Israel, Amos says, and see if I can defend my statement. In chapter, chapter 2, verse uh, 6, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a, a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor into the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. You know, there's something wrong with Israel that Amos wants to point out, and here it is. You, he says to them, Israel are a wealthy and prosperous nation. In his first message, section 2, Amos says this, chapter 3, verse 15, I will demolish the winter house and the summer house, and the houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed, and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. These people had two houses. Not only had they two houses, but they had granite tops on their kitchen sinks. I mean, they had, they had the top-of-the-line things of their day. In his third message, he says, But you are only bringing closer the Assyrian rule of terror. You lie down on beds that are decorated with ivory. You rest on your couches. You eat the best lambs and the fattest calves. You pluck away on your harps as David did. You play new songs on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful. You use the finest lotions. But Joseph's people will soon be destroyed, and you aren't even sad about it. So you will be among the first to be taken away as prisoners. You won't be able to enjoy good food. You won't lie around on couches anymore. Now, here's my point. My point is that the, the thing that, that is underlying God's condemnation of Israel is their affluence. Now, don't misunderstand. God is not condemning their affluence. God is making the statement that they are very prosperous, that they have a lot of affluence, they have a lot of money, okay? But the second thing that's clear is that in their prosperity, they clearly do not care about the poor, but at times use their wealth even to oppress the poor. Not only did they not care about the poor, they took advantage, advantages that their wealth gave them. They took advantages that would lead them to even oppress the poor even more. Which leads me to this. The people that Amos was sent to address, I believe, they're the leadership of Israel. They're the people who are in charge. They're the people who are the kings and the priests and the prophets. And they are the people who are the, the 
how do I say it? The, the rich of their land? Those are the people that Amos is specifically called to, uh, to speak to. God's indictment is that they do not use their wealth to care for the poor, but rather to enslave them and even sell them for the cost of a pair of sandals. In his second message, in the second section, Amos says, God is going to spread like a consuming fire over those who turn, and I quote, verse 7, who turn justice into wormwood and throw righteousness to the ground. In chapter 5, verse 11, this is in that third message, in that section of three messages, he says, therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins are innumerable. They oppress the righteous. They take a bribe and they deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time for the days are evil. Not only are the affluent taking advantage and caring not for the poor, but there are people who are just standing by and letting it happen and do nothing about it. To the cow women of Samaria, God says, listen to the Lord's message, you women who live on the hill of Samaria. You treat poor people badly. You crush those who are in need. In his second message, he says to the wealthy who live in these luxurious homes, he says, listen to me, you who walk all over the needy people. You crush those who are poor in the land. You buy poor people to make slaves out of them. You buy those who are in need for a mere pair of sandals. You know, I don't think I can adequately express to us this morning, you know, God's heart for the poor, but it has got to be something that we have got to step back from as affluent Americans and see that God really does care about the poor, and especially the poor that our brother was describing on the video that I showed you earlier. Proverbs 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Proverbs 11, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Proverbs 19. Proverbs 22, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Isaiah chapter 1, learn to do right, seek justice, defeat, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. And by the way, the fatherless orphan and the widow, those were the poor people. Of the, those were the poorest of the poor people in those days. There was no welfare. There, there, was, no, there was no government providing, providing for those folks. Lord, you have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat, Isaiah 25. 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Luke chapter 14, Jesus himself said to the host, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Men, and I could go on and on and on. If you don't believe me, take a concordance this week and type in Google and and type for verses about the poor and read them for yourself. Read what God says about the poor. Amos is bringing a message of condemnation against Israel because they're selfish in their affluence and they do not care about the poor. So here's what I want to say to you and me. What about me? What about you? Do you really care, I mean truly care about the poor? What about us as a church family? Do we really, really care about the poor. You know, I really wanted to watch that video now, but it was so long, and I just, I just couldn't bring myself to do it, but I couldn't not show it to you. The, the reason I showed that video is because, I don't know if it hit you like it hit me, but if we in America were a nation, we would be the seventh wealthiest, na- wealthiest nation in the world. Us believers, us, see, don't miss that, us believers, us Christians, We, and he defined Christians as going to church and saying we genuinely care about our faith. We would be the seventh largest nation in the world. 
or richest nation in the world, and we would have a seat at the G8. I mean, to me, that was, that was astounding. We have so much affluence. So, so let me ask you the question, and, and I really, I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I mean, this has just impacted me all week. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that God cared about the poor back then, but doesn't care about the poor today? Do you think God's condemnation of them is they live in their absolute affluence without caring for the poor and trampling down the heads of the poor, and, and, and he doesn't care about that for us, his people, in this day? I mean, I think he does care. I mean, I think he really cares. And I think if Amos was here, I think if Amos was here, Amos might have something to say to us as in our affluence. And again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying our affluence is bad. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying, what do we do with our affluence? That was the issue. That was the issue. It wasn't that they, they were affluent. It's that they didn't care about people who were so marginalized in their poverty. Why didn't they care? Let me ask you that. Why didn't they care? You know why they didn't care? Here's what Amos says. And, uh, he doesn't say it directly, but he says it by implication over and over again. You know why they didn't care? It's because they didn't care about God. They really didn't care about God. You say, well, how do you know that, Jimmy, that they really didn't care about God? Well, I know that because of things that Amos says to them. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 11, remember that first indictment against Israel? God says, you know, I, I, I brought you guys out against the Amorites. I raised up prophets, and, and some of your men I called them to be Nazarites. Is that not the case, Israel? And then he follows it up with this. This is the Lord's declaration. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. In other words, you said, we don't want to hear from God. We don't want to hear what God has to say. They wouldn't listen. So here, here's what Amos is implying. Here's what God is implying. You don't really care about me. In chapter 4, verse 4, the second message, Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Remember who's Bethel and Gilgal? They're the false altar, altars that they've set up. Come to Bethel and rebel. Come to Gilgal and rebel even more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as thank offerings and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For that is what you Israelites love to do. This is the Lord's declaration. Do you catch the sarcasm? Do you see the point? I mean, they're not following God. They're just doing what they want to do. But here's the biggie. When we get to the vision of the fruit basket in chapter 8, the third of the, I think it's the, the, the fourth vision, the fourth vision in the last section, this is what God says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and do away with the poor in the land, asking when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so that we may go to market. We can reduce the measure while increasing the price and cheat with dishonest scales. We can buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. I mean, Amos says that thing about the sandals two or three times and even sell the shaft. Here's, here's what God says. You don't care about the Sabbath. You don't care about, you don't care about my festivals. What, what you're actually saying is, man, when will these things be over so that we can get out there and make more money and, and trample the poor even more? And then God says this in chapter 5, verse 21. This is the third message. I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will, ha I, have, I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fatted cattle. Take away, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Wow. But... But, God says, let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. You know, if we don't care about what God cares about, you know, our songs are, you know, God says, I hate your singing. I don't want to hear your noise. If you're not willing to really care about what I care about, what do I care about? I care about justice. Let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream care about the things that I care about. And what does God care about? Man, if you don't see it, all through, all woven out through Amos's, Amos's declaration to Israel is, is their lack of concern and love and care for the poor and the needy. I wonder if there would be any chance that God would say to me or to you or to us together, I loathe your gatherings on Sunday morning. Man, I don't think so. I don't want to think that. 
But remember, his whole point was this. You guys just, in Israel, they keep doing their thing in Bethel and Gilgal. And God says, you just keep doing that. You just keep doing that. But it, it, it actually means nothing to me. And so God is saying to us today, I think anyway, I believe the message of Amos for you and me today is not that we shouldn't be affluent, not that you shouldn't try to make all the money in the world you can make. Make it. But here's what I'd say to you. Make sure. Make sure that in making money, it doesn't become all about you and your luxuries and your selfishness and your pleasures. Make sure that somewhere on your radar is the heart of God. And what is the heart of God? It's, it's the poorest of the poor in the world. How does the book of Amos end? Oh, I'm out of time. How does the book of Amos end? With the promise of future restoration. Look at verse 11. In that day I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. And, I, and so I love it. Verse 11, the, the, the last turn in the book. Amos is putting all that stuff aside. And he says, look, I want to promise you something. God's going to restore David's, David's tent that's fallen down. God's going to restore it, right? God's going to build it back up. And then what's really neat is we go to the New Testament and James, and James quotes this very passage and says it's fulfilled. And you know where he says it's fulfilled? It's after Peter goes to the assembly of believers in, in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. He just sits through telling them how Cornelius, this Gentile brother who has faith in God, has now been introduced to Jesus, and Jesus has given them the Holy Spirit as Gentiles, and Peter is excited about this and saying, man, they should be baptized. He's baptized him, I believe, and he's, he's saying, man, the Gentiles and the Jews together, we are one. And so James says this, brethren, listen to me. Simon Peter has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Verse 15, with this, the words of the prophets agree. And I could say, with this, the words of the prophet Amos agree, just as it's written, after these things, I'll return and I'll rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I'll restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Here's what James is saying, everybody. He's saying that in the New Testament, the promise of Amos was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled by God bringing the Gentiles into Israel and making them a part of his kingdom and his family. And the fulfillment to David went like this. The fulfillment to David was, your son shall sit on my throne. And Jesus is that son. He rebuilt the house of David when Jesus came. And the promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations. And this is the fulfillment of that. Listen to me. Listen, this is so excited. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to do it in two minutes. All right. All my Christian adult life, I always thought when it said that God is going to make Abraham the father of many nations, that God was talking about how you know, Hagar was going to get in there, and Ishmael's going to become the father of a nation, and then he's going to marry Keturah, and he's going to have all these other children. I think it's 11, maybe, or 8, or something like that. He's going to have these other sons, and they're going to become other nations. And those are, that's how he's the father of many nations, right? That's not what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Beginning with verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, didn't come through being Jewish, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law, adherents and, and adherents, I think I'm saying that word right, of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inherent of the law, that is the Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, that's us Gentile believers, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here's what Paul says. He's saying this, Abraham, this promise to Abraham was fulfilled 
When the Gentile nations came in by faith and became sons of Abraham by faith. The church is the fulfillment of what God promised Abraham. And if you keep on looking down in the text in Amos chapter 9, verse 13, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet, sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards, drink their wine, make gardens, eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land that I will give them. The Lord your God has spoken. I believe the promise of God through Amos that day was the promise to all of us who are Israel by faith. And that is that there is coming a day when God is going to make all things new. Listen to me. Everything's going to be made new. The world will drip with God's goodness. And there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more wrong. Only God's righteousness. Only God's goodness. But in the meantime, I think Amos, God is calling us through Amos to care about justice, to care about the poor, and to do everything we can as, as followers of Jesus to lift the plight of those that we saw illustrated for us in, uh, in, the, in the video. Let's bow our heads. Let me just speak personally for a second with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. This is, this, Matt, I didn't think this was going to be so hard. I mean, I didn't think it was going to be so hard for me to speak this. When I was talking with Ann about this this week, and she said, but Jimmy, how, how do we do this? How do I care about the poor? How, how, do, we, how do we do what you're talking about? And, uh, man, I, you know, I feel kind of bad because I, I don't have any specifics. Do one, two, three, four. I don't, I don't have any of that. So here's, but here's what I feel like the Lord's led me to say to you, and that is that we should all begin to pray and ask God to burden our hearts, burden our hearts with the poor here at home, but really, you know, most people here, the poverty at home, just, it just, it pales in comparison to, you know, the extreme poverty that's around the world, but, but begin to pray that God would truly burden your heart for what burdens his. Begin to pray that God would burden your heart for the poor. That you would care about their plight. I mean, so many poor live in places where there's no justice. People that have do everything they can to rob from the poor. And, and I realize that's, that's not necessarily right here where we have hands on. But just pray that God would burden my heart, your heart for the poor. And, and then begin to pray, say, Lord, how can I take my affluence, the wealth that you've given me, show me, Lord, direct me to a place that I can begin to invest in such a way that will lift some of the, the hurt that poverty is bringing to some people. I'm not going to tell you what to do there. I'm just, just begin to pray, God, show me how I can take my affluence and use it to lift this burden. God, hear our prayers. I know, I know my wife spoke for many, when, and, and even to my own heart, when she said, Lord, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And I don't know that we all know what to do. But Lord, I pray that we would not leave here not caring anymore. I pray that we would leave here saying, I want to do more. I want to care. And would you begin to change our hearts, Lord? Would, would, you, would you show us the things that we need to see that would begin to burden us for, for the poor? Lord, we, like the Israelites, have received so much grace through the gospel of Christ and through the affluence of our nation. We, we have, and through the gospel's transformation of our country, Lord, we have been the recipients of so much. Father, help us not to simply squander our affluence on ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would use our affluence to change the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.